0: So this month we're working through a series of messages uh, based on a book called The Deeply Formed Life, written by Rich Valotis. And we're just using his chapter headings as themes to jump off of uh, so we can talk about this. And last week we talked about contemplative prayer. Today we're talking about racial reconciliation. And that's the really neat, neat thing about this book is that he balances the inward life with the outward life. Contemplation and action, prayer and service. And that, I think that rhythm is critical to a healthy, deepening spiritual life. The journey inward, the deeply formed life is what animates the journey outward. So I want you to look with me today as we talk about racial reconciliation. I want you to look with me at Ephesians chapter two. That's where we're gonna be. The best way to engage the message is with something to write on and something to write with. Um, I approach this uh, topic with a lot of um, fear and trepidation, but also a real clear understanding of what the Bible challenges us toward, and so I just want to pray for you as we uh, look at Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to start with verse 11, but I want to pray first. Lord Jesus, that you would give us eyes to see what's in the Scripture and ears to hear what the Spirit wants to say to us in this room for this season and, I, and I'm praying, God, for a heart that, that stretches far enough to capture it all. God, give us ears to hear what you want us to hear, each one of us, right where we live. If you would do that, Jesus, we would be so grateful. We love, honor, and worship you, Christ. Amen. So look at verse 11, Ephesians 2, uh, verse 11. Therefore, he says, remember, I want you to underline that word, remember. Remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called the uncircumcised by those who called themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember, when you say that, underline that twice. You remember when we, we see it more in there more than once. He wants you to do something with it. He wants you to remember. Remember where you've come from. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Underline that phrase, by the blood of Christ. And and then, I'm gonna come back up to verse 11 just so we can remember what he says here. Remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body, by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. It's one of the reasons I love Paul so much. He does. He's not above a little gentle confrontation. Uh, and right here he quietly reminds these Gentile believers who are trying to make a scene over some people who weren't doing something right. That they were once outsiders themselves. In the same way they are measuring others, somebody once looked at them, measured them by a critical standard and decided they were not as good as. So these Gentile believers were once distinguished from the Jewish people, God's people, by a physical mark that wasn't arbitrary but was man-made. God, and Paul is using circumcision to make a point here that is that about that all too human tendency To distinguish ourselves from others based on whatever value is convenient. Whatever value makes us not like them, whoever the them is that we're targeting at the moment. This is a recurring theme for Paul, who is himself faithful and observant. He's a Jewish man, a, a Pharisee, sent to bring Gentiles. He was a missionary to the Gentiles. Sent to bring them under the influence of the cross of Jesus Christ. Remember, you were saved by the blood of Jesus, he says to them. As a Pharisee, he'd once been the guy who pointed out all the ways the other people were not like him. Slaves and women were property. Greeks were subhuman to a Jew. A Pharisee's prayer was literally, God, I thank you that I am a Jew, not a Gentile, a man, not a woman, a freeman, not a slave. Pro tip, don't pray that, okay? That was the Pharisee's prayer. And now Paul, a Pharisee's Pharisee, comes in and says that in Jesus, the whole system has been blown apart. See, the thing was, to be Jewish was and is both a religion and a race or an ethnicity. And if you put it in biblical terms, they were a people or a a nation. And all through the Old Testament, as a nation or a people, Jews were cautioned to segregate themselves. They were told not to marry the wives of foreigners. More than once, when they were told by God to go in and protect, to, to, to possess a land, they were told not to leave anybody standing, not a single person, And that seems pretty harsh. And I can't explain all of that. Can't possibly understand or or represent the the motives of God in those extreme circumstances. Except to say that out of a pagan mentality, out of an idol-worshiping world, God was carrying out a people from whom he would expect holiness as a lifestyle. And he didn't want anything or anyone clouding that vision. The people of Israel would be a people who are defined by the holiness of God. Let me say that again. You should write this down. The people of Israel would be a people who were defined by the holiness of God. I want you to write that down because that has not changed. The people of God are to be a people who are defined by his holiness and yet even God said through the prophet Jeremiah he said the day is going to come when when this mark of holiness would extend beyond the borders of Israel the day would come when God would take the laws he was given these people the, the laws these external rules and things they were supposed to go by and he would put those laws in their minds and he would write them on their hearts and it would be that our interior identification with our posture toward the values of the kingdom that would mark us too as the people of God and Jesus was the one who would introduce this new kind of humanity he comes and he says you don't need a national division anymore because the law is no longer given to a nation of people but through the spirit is being poured out over all who believe thanks be to god so we are citizens of the kingdom of god first so where this people group was once cautioned to keep separate and to 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 um to, you know, to protect their own nation in Christ, they were now being called not away from the world, but into the world, to preach the good news of Jesus and to graft in every person who comes not by ethnicity, excuse me, by ethnicity or nationality or by any external mark, but by faith. We come to Christ by faith. This is a very hard concept Paul was trying to convey, not even to Jewish people, but to Gentiles who believed the good news about Jesus, because it seems we all have this insatiable capacity to build walls. It's curious to me. The arbitrary ways we choose to distinguish ourselves from each other, drawing on that Genesis 3 fallen tendency to turn creation story partnerships into hierarchies. You remember this, right? Genesis 1 made us partners, Genesis excuse me, 1 and 2 made us partners, but then Genesis 3, the coming of the fall, um, made us into a hierarchy. And ever since, not just with men and women, but with everyone and everything. We have this fallen need to prove our goodness. So we measure ourselves against others. We do the hierarchy thing, at least I'm not like that one, using arbitrary measures so we can prove that we are not totally depraved. Because we're scared to death of thinking of ourselves as totally depraved and in need of grace. But friends, you are totally depraved but for Jesus. We do it with everything. We do it with sports teams. I had to introduce somebody um, from a stage yesterday and I had to bite my tongue as I celebrated the fact that he was a graduate of the University of Florida Because we know, right? I counted it a mark of my sanctification that I didn't say anything. And we do it with regions of the country. No true southerner really believes that people from the north are better than us. No true northerners, northerner can hear a southern accent without thinking of Forrest Gump. We do this to each other. Do you remember my story last week? I'm finding myself judged for being left-handed in a right-handed country. If you didn't hear the story, um, look it up online from last week's message. I can't speak for all left-handers, but um, in our part of the world, I hardly notice my my left-handedness, not in our part of the world. When I was little, my third-grade teacher actually hated left-handed people, and she would whack me when she saw me writing with my left hand. But as an adult, I really only notice it, I mean, I still notice it when I use a pair of scissors. I don't know what it is about scissors, but in a left hand, they just don't work the same as in a right hand. And if you buy a cheap knife, it's serrated only on one side, the right-hander's side. But those aren't, anybody else in here left-handed? Who else in here? So there's, oh look, wow. <laughs> Praise Jesus. <laughs> This is the left-handed service. There was only one in the first service. I know. The second service is better than the first service. (laughs) The thing is, when I'm in India, I'm in a right-hander's world, and and everything is calibrated, situated, and culturated for a right-handed person. People eat with their right hand, and they eat with their hands, actually. So, just their right hand. And I bet 99% of people who are in India who are right handed have no idea that right handedness as a preference makes life hard for everybody else. I bet they have no idea. Maybe they would be concerned if they knew, or maybe they wouldn't. But of course, if right handedness is never acknowledged, as a specific way of being that makes life harder for left-handed people, then how will we ever know whether or not anybody cares? If we never acknowledge it, does this make sense? How will we know if anybody cares? So what we're talking about, and I want you to hear me with your heart right now, we're talking about the dominant culture bending the world to its preferences with no sense of how that might be affecting a minority culture. And I don't wanna know more than I know. So please tell me if I'm completely missing the point here. But maybe that's something like what Paul is saying here when he asks these Jesus-believing Gentiles who are living in a mostly Gentile world in Ephesus, not to give in to that all-too-human tendency to start judging other people, God's people, in fact, as somehow less than. So in Velodas' book, he uses a term that, frankly, for a lot of white people, is loaded. It's whiteness. It's whiteness as a concept. And I get it. It makes us nervous to even say it out loud. But if we never acknowledge, if we never think through these things, how will we ever be able to know whether it matters to us or not? So when he uses whiteness, Velotus, he's talking about how much of the world deals with ethnic diversity. And he gently challenges us to consider how we ask others to bend to our preferences. I want you to think about this. A a Pew Forum survey, Pew Forum is a reputable uh, research uh, firm. Pew Forum asked 10,000 American adults if we've made progress when it comes to issues related to race. About 19% of black adults said, we've made a lot of progress. But 64% of white adults said, we've made a lot of progress. Perspective matters. That same study found that 90% of black adults believe white people benefit from how our society functions. But less than half of white adults said they benefit from how society functions. So we don't have to agree with whether these r- stats are accurate or not, although 10,000 people do have a right to their opinion. The point is, perspective matters, right? And some of us hate hearing stats like this because it makes us feel helpless. It makes us feel attacked. We don't want to feel this way. It's part of that fallen thing we do to protect ourselves, to keep ourselves from feeling totally depraved. I'm not that. I'm not that. But listen... Again, listen with your heart. What we miss when we don't allow ourselves to empathize with other points of view is mercy. That's what we miss. What we miss when we don't allow ourselves to empathize with another person's point of view is mercy. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. It is as we unleash empathy, as we unleash compassion, as we tear down the dividing walls of hostility, Paul will tell us this in just a minute, that we begin to feel the compassion of God toward us. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because to the extent that my heart is hard toward anyone else, I will not be able to feel the compassion of God toward me. Jesus says this, Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. So if whiteness as a term doesn't sit well with you, don't use it. That's fine. But have the humility to hear what Paul says when he says that our tendency to create hierarchies, to rank, ways of being if those things are never acknowledged if for instance people with white skin never acknowledge that we have ways of living that might make life harder for for other people even if we don't mean for that to be so if we never acknowledge that possibility then how will we ever learn mercy How will we ever know how far our hearts need to stretch? Or in fact, if our hearts are willing to stretch at all. Maybe that question needs to become more personal. If you never acknowledge the ways in which your normal makes it harder on someone else's life, then how will you ever know if that even matters to you? How will you know how far your heart needs to stretch or if your heart is willing to stretch at all? How will you ever get close enough to someone to see Jesus in their, I- in their eyes if your worldview never allows you to acknowledge what might be hard for them? I'm gonna ask that question again. If you never acknowledge that your normal makes it harder for someone else, might make it harder for someone else, how will you ever know how far your heart needs to stretch? Or if you're even willing to stretch at all? Does this make sense? Look at verse 13, Ephesians 2, Verse 13, he says, but in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What Paul is wanting to make sure we all get here is that the ground is level beneath the cross. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, underline that phrase, For he himself is our peace, he says, verse 14, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of of hostility. When Paul talks about the dividing wall of hostility, he is talking about a very real wall between two kinds of people. But I believe that wall between us is also a wall within us. In fact, I suspect the wall within us, that dividing wall of hostility that lives inside of us is the, is the wall that actually creates the dividing wall between us. I suspect that the wall within us, that dividing wall of hostility that lives inside each of us is the one that creates the walls between us. Because these two warring sides inside every one of us That's the result of the fall. We battle each other because we battle within ourselves. And if I had to guess, I'd say it's fear that creates that war within us. We're afraid of discovering we aren't worthy of life. That's what we're afraid of, that our place on the planet is a waste, that we are totally depraved. And that total depravity actually excludes us from the goodness of God. No wonder bad theologies like limited atonement get invented. Limited atonement, that idea that some people are saved and some people are doomed to never be saved no matter how hard they try. That seems to me to come straight out of a worldview that is scared to death that I am not savable. But just so you don't worry... We don't believe in limited atonement. We teach that unlimited atonement, the idea that Jesus' blood was shed, not just for some people or only for those God has chosen in advance, unlimited atonement is the gift of the cross. The ground is level at the cross. The blood of Jesus was shed for all people and is equally available to all people. We are all chosen. Isn't that great news? We are all chosen and can now choose the God who has chosen us. Come on. So Paul teaches us, uh, Ephesians 2.13, Now in Christ Jesus you who are once far away have been brought near, Not because you're good enough, but by the blood of Christ. And verse 14, he himself is our peace. He is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Consequently, verse 19, you're not a foreigner or a slave anymore. You're not the person pressing your, hand, your face against the glass, wishing you could get in there. You're not a foreigner or a stranger anymore. You are a fellow citizen with all God's people and also members of his household. So Paul's point is that we are equal because we're all in a common relationship with Jesus Christ. We are blood relatives. The blood that joins us is the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus is what ties us together, and it's the sacrifice of Jesus that makes us worthy. I don't earn my own worthiness. I am made worthy by the blood of Jesus. So when we talk about reconciling groups of people, what we are talking about is, is what, what we're asking ourselves is what in me is still holding a defense that keeps me from hearing where another person is? That's it. What in me has held on to such defense? What in me is holding on to shame? What in me is holding on to the total lie that I have to defend myself and that keeps me from being able to empathize, confidently empathize with another person's perspective. Does that make sense? So I was thinking, what is the spiritual discipline that retrains our brains toward the creation side of holiness? Philotus mentions several in his book. He talks about remembering. Remember it twice in, in that, this passage we've looked at. Twice he, he talks about remembering. Re- remembering is, you know, we, we have all taken the same path to get to the cross of Jesus. We have all come from the place of not being worthy to being made worthy by the blood of Jesus, all of us. So remember where you came from. And listening, he talks about listening to help us gain context. It's as I listen with a non-defensive posture that I begin to empathize and find out how far my heart needs to stretch or even if I have a heart to stretch at all. Lament is a corrective to the anger and the bitterness that collects inside of us. And he talks about reconciling prayer, which is about learning the difference between, uh, 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 which is about learning a different internal script. So that me, rather than constantly feeling I'm having to defend myself or tear myself down, how do, how do I learn a different internal script that sees myself as having gained mercy so I can give mercy? Remember, blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy. Have mercy to give. So I thought of that idea of gaining a new script. The, the spiritual discipline that came to me is actually a, a very ancient prayer, the Jesus prayer. I've talked about it in here before. It's a precious prayer to me. I've used it thousands of times do you remember the story jesus told about the pharisee who stood in the front he stood up front and he said he said um thank you jesus or god he was saying, thank you god that i am not like that guy and he was pointing toward the back of the room toward a tax collector thank you god that i'm not like that guy pro tip don't pray that prayer <laughs> You gotta be a special kind of arrogant to judge somebody who's in the room with you while you're praying. (laughs) It's what happens when the spirit of religion hardens the heart. You lose all sensitivity and compassion toward other people. The man in the back was a tax collector who was quietly praying, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says the one who went home justified was the guy in the back who had his eyes on his own work. who knew the ground beneath the cross is level. I bet there are people in this room who can have, have the feeling of that prayer, that feeling of living in a perpetual state of shame, no matter what you've done with your life. It doesn't get, it, you know, it just doesn't get, get easier. That, that mental state is unbearably hard. That's not the prayer this guy was praying. He's not that praying of, prayer of shame. What, he, what he's praying is, prayer of humility when I label people or refuse to see past those labels I'm the one who ends up being condemned no so I so the remedy according to the parable is keep your eyes on your own work or it's what Paul says work out your own salvation every day with fear and trembling Paul tells us let the daily wrestling, let the daily wrestling, the lament, the remembering, the listening, expose the cracks and wounds because until they get exposed, we won't know how far our hearts need to stretch or even if we're willing to let them stretch at all. So out of the tax collector's example has become one of the most repeated prayers in the Bible other than probably the Lord's Prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, uh, no, the way he puts it is, God be merciful to me, to, God be merciful to me a sinner. But the, the Eastern Orthodox Church has expanded that prayer now. So that it says, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me a sinner. I always say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me a sinner. It's often called the prayer of the heart or the Jesus prayer. I like thinking of it today as the prayer of the heart. It's the prayer that stretches my heart toward what can be. It's the prayer of holiness and a cure for both contempt and arrogance. I want you to write this prayer down. I'm going to say it slow so you can write it down. Lord Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, thank you. It's, got, it's on the screen. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I prayed that prayer thousands of times while I was in seminary. Went through a season where I just prayed it every single morning. I can tell you after years of praying it, I have still not come to the end of that prayer. I found my humanity and God's holiness in this prayer. Thomas Merton recommended praying it every day, meditating on each phrase separately so it can, so you can plumb the depths, and that's how I do it. Lord, Jesus Christ is an acknowledgement that Jesus is Lord and everything else is not. Son of God, really sets us into the heart of God because Jesus, the Son of God, is the heart of God. When we pray, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, we are praying into the very heart of God. That's a powerful receptacle for prayer. Have mercy on me, a sinner. The word sinner helps us understand the word mercy. Why mercy? Why not forgiveness or grace or favor? Why not ask for a better life or a better job? Evidently, God has a preference for people who see themselves as in need of God's mercy because mercy is God's character. When we cry out for mercy, we're actually crying out for more of God. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. If I cry out, not just to get mercy, but to give mercy, It becomes like this wonderfully repetitive thing in my life. As I give it, I get it. God is rich in mercy. Richard Rohr says this, Note that when you do not stand under the mercy, your mind almost certainly does one or all of three things. Plays the victim, accuses others, or falsely exalts itself. When you don't stand under the mercy, one of those three things is going to be what happens. You play the victim, you accuse somebody else, it can't be... or falsely exalts itself. But when you honestly ask for mercy, you make all three of these responses unnecessary and in a way, impossible. Lord, have mercy makes your identity a totally received one, a gift of grace, and nothing that you need to protect or claim as your own. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. I want to ask you to stand. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. I want to say to you, you need this prayer more than you realize, especially if you're all clenched up right now. You need this prayer more than you realize. You need it in order to keep your heart soft toward other people. You need it so you will know how far your heart needs to stretch and if you're even willing to let it stretch at all. You need it so you can hear another person's stories and another person's perspective and another person's pain without being defensive. You need this prayer in order to call down mercy over your own life. You need it in order to remind yourself who is Lord and who is not. You need it to remind yourself of what real life looks like and how far yours is from that. You need it to reconcile The warring sides of yourself, oh friends, you need this prayer in order to reconcile the warring sides of yourself. Because without that kind of vulnerable, soft hearted, stretched heart, faith, you won't go home justified. Do you remember? Jesus said, between the guy in the front, he said, thank God I'm not like that. And the guy in the back, he said, the one in the back, he's the one who went home justified. So you want to go home justified? You need this prayer. You need it. And this may be one of those prayers where you need to change your posture. Not just your inner posture, but your physical posture in order to be able to say it with any feeling at all. Can you move from this to this, Jesus? Have mercy on me, a sinner. Just have mercy on me. What is the posture you need right now as we pray through this prayer? Jesus Christ I don't even know what I am what idol I am protecting where I'm using fear to protect my idol I don't even know I don't even know but right here in this moment all of us who are in this room what we want to say to you is that you are Lord You're not a Lord, you're the Lord. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, because right now, God, right now, I just want to crawl up into your heart. And if Jesus, the Son of God, is your heart, I want to be right there in your heart with him. I want to crawl up into your heart, God, and I want to pull your heart around me like a weighted blanket. Feel your mercy right now. Have mercy on me. God, I wanna feel the goodness of your mercy, the kindness of your mercy, the gentleness of your mercy. I want, God, for your mercy to, to dismantle the warring sides of me. Have mercy on me, the defensive side of me the angry, bitter side of me, the hurting side of me, the grieving side of me, the shamed side of me. Have mercy on me, God. I just pull your, pull your mercy all around me. and I feel your strength and your weight and your goodness and your mothering heart. And I am grateful cuz I know that without you I'm just a sinner with no hope but with you I am redeemed I am made whole I am made worthy I am made holy I'm thankful, God, that you have the final word. I'm thankful. Jesus. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our message. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you. Visit us or check out our website at mosaicchurchevans.org for more information. May God bless your day.